0: TT. Yes. I feel like everybody and their mama was traveling this summer.
1: Yeah. Outside opened up and people could travel a lot more and everybody hit the streets hard.
0: Is there a travel newsletter? How are people all going to the same destination? People I've never seen eat a string of pasta ended up in Italy. All of them
1: (laughs) in Italy. I don't know if there were some airline deals or what. It's the same thing that was happening last year when everybody was going to Mexico.
0: Right. I was like, is it a travel page that I don't know about that's telling us where to go? How are we getting all these trends? And not only are people going to specific destinations, but it feels like the volume of travel is so much higher, especially compared to what we saw in 2020, you know?
1: Absolutely. I know that a lot of places probably took a big hit when COVID hit as far as tourism goes. And the rebound, I don't know if they're rebounding, but it seems like everybody is getting out. I'm Titi. And I'm Zakia, And from Spotify, this is Dope Labs. Oh, oh.
0: Welcome to Dope Labs, a weekly podcast that mixes hardcore science, pop culture, and a healthy dose of friendship.
1: This week, we're talking all about the tourism economy. Specifically, we really wanted to know more about coastal tourism and its effect on local communities and ecologies.
0: Let's get into the recitation.
1: So what do we know?
0: Well, We know that travel was really limited for the past few years. And now it's wide open. People are back at it.
1: Yes, everyone is outside. And now that there's a lot of people that are working from home, how we travel has changed a lot. People are working from all over the globe.
0: And with folks working from all over the globe, I know there has been some impact on these local communities that they're traveling to. And I know that also because I've been hearing about it a little bit, both in Twitter threads and in comments on
1: Instagram. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what do we want to know?
0: I specifically want to know more about the tourism economy. I can remember people talking about it at the height of the pandemic, you know, like shutting down tourism. And I was like, oh, this is bigger than I thought. It's not just Disney World.
1: Right. I think I have an idea, but I want to hear the specifics about how tourism affects indigenous communities.
0: I think travel is still baked into our way of life, Mm -hmm. you know, and considering that even if you're not just vacationing, but you might have to travel for work, you know, conferences Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, or just one-off traveling to stay connected with your family and friends. So considering all of that, what can we do to be more conscious travelers? Let's jump into the dissection. Our guest for today's lab is Sarah Stadola.
2: Hi, I am Sarah Stadola. I'm the author of The Last Resort, which is a book about the history, the future, the economy of beach tourism. I'm a longtime travel writer, which is what ultimately led me into writing this book.
0: When I think about summer and travel and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. summer vacation, I immediately think about beach resorts. We started by asking Sarah to walk us through the history of beach resorts as we know them now.
2: They started out in, you know, the 1500s in England as almost this wellness thing. You know, people would go to places that had springs. They would go to improve their health in some way because of the qualities of the water. And then in the 1700s, a couple of enterprising doctors that ran those kinds of resorts thought they'd get a kind of competitive advantage or, you know, get a leg up on the competition by starting to introduce the supposed benefits of seawater. And so then the first resorts emerged at the seaside that took advantage of dipping into seawater, ingesting seawater, mixing seawater with your wine (laughs) for the health benefits there. And so that's really where the first seaside resorts were born from.
1: You going to start putting seawater in your wine?
2: (laughs) My friend. (laughs) (laughs) A salty wine? I don't think so.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no. Sarah said that starting in the late 1500s, doctors began prescribing seawater, bathing in it and drinking it to treat all kinds of ailments like heat stroke, melancholia, digestive issues, tuberculosis, even leprosy.
0: And like all good things, (laughs) this was eventually capitalized on with the creation of the Seaside Resort. And to be clear, These were not places to have fun and relax at the time. All right, TT, take us back to the mid-18th century. Roll that beautiful beam footage. What was it like to be at a sea resort at that time?
1: Okay, so there's this article from The Atlantic called The Historic Healing Power of the Beach by A.D. Braun. And so just imagine yourself, mid-18th century. You are going to the spa, okay? You're going for a treatment. And your treatment resembles something similar to waterboarding. Mm. So you are going to be dunked in freezing seawater repeatedly until you feel so cold that it feels like you're suffocating and you start to feel terror and panic. And they thought that that was revitalizing. Mm. Then, (laughs) while you're standing there (laughs) dripping wet and scared for your life, you would be pulled from the water and then given a vigorous back rub and feet warmers, and then thrown onto dry land for a cup of tea. And what was supposed to happen was that the adrenaline from the shock of the cold was supposed to have soothing effects on the body to calm your anxiety and restore the body-soul balance. This sounds very stressful to me. (laughs) How you go to spa to be more stressed?
0: (laughs) If you dunk me (laughs) in that water and drag me out... (laughs) And all you have for me is a cup of tea? You better hope I'm dead, okay? Kill me. Because it's going to be hell to pay. (laughs) You better hope the treatment kills me. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So when did we change from this? When did we go from what sounds like a horror to what I know as a beach resort?
1: The idea of the beach as a place for fun in the sun started to change in the 1900s when Americans started going as a summer destination.
2: In Europe, even though beach tourism had become very popular, It was still a wintertime activity. You weren't going at the hottest time of year. So the Americans in the early 1900s, well before even then, the Americans had started using beaches as an escape from the sweltering cities in the summer. And then they brought that back over to Europe and that's when the seaside beach tourism became this hot weather, get as little on as you can, (laughs) have fun in the sand kind of thing.
1: Up until this point, seaside resorts were still catering to the most elite and wealthiest people in society. But all of that changed in the mid-19th century after World War II. With the growth of the middle class and more economic travel options like trains, the seaside resort became a destination for people seeking rest and rehabilitation.
2: All of a sudden, it wasn't just the upper classes that could afford to go on a lengthy beach vacation. Now, all of a sudden, there's a growing, exploding population that can afford it also. And so that kind of resulted in this explosion of tourism in general, but also beach tourism specifically.
0: Sarah brought up one more inflection point that is crucial, and that is the emergence of Hawaii as a vacation destination.
2: Hawaii was kind of this stepping stone also in the early 1900s, to more kind of far-flung beach tourism. Before Hawaii, all beach tourism was either in Europe or America. And it was the first time that travelers from those places were kind of heading out of a culture that looked just like their own.
0: So that's a lot to take in.
1: Yes. So to sum it up, there's a lot of inflection points that led us to where we are today. One being the beach having medicinal properties. Then Beach vacations become more affordable to more people and the emergence of the beach as this far away paradise. And all of these things have led us to where we are today, the current state of beach tourism.
2: One of the things I wanted to do with this book was kind of make it clear just like what a major global industry tourism is. It's a nine trillion dollar industry industry. It's bigger than cars internationally. It's bigger than food internationally. A lot of the time it doesn't get covered that way because so much travel media tends to be inspirational and service journalism helping people decide where to go. And so it hasn't really gotten covered as the serious major industry that it is.
1: Yes. Bigger than food, everybody got to eat. I know. Okay? Okay. We're traveling more than Not everybody
0: here. has to travel.
1: I know. And when you think about it with that perspective, it's really shocking.
0: Sarah raises a really good point. It feels like now online, people are treating travel like a personality.
1: They really think that it is. I mean,
0: I see it everywhere in IG profiles. They'll say my passport has this many stamps or I've been mm-hmm. to this many mm-hmm. countries. And on the dating apps it's huge. People are like, don't swipe on me unless you have a passport. I've been to 56 countries. <laughs> I'm like, baby, Dang. have you been home? <laughs> and so I get it. Travel's big. But I think I want to understand, like, even when we talk about the tourism industry, OK, it includes those people and the services they need. But what other things does it include? So I know we're talking about resorts and, you know, buses to shuttle you different places. But what else is included in tourism that I'm not thinking about?
2: Obviously, you have to include air travel, and it's a major, major, major part of it. It's also the biggest contributor to the carbon footprint of tourism. I think you have to include, you know, food and drink production. A lot of resorts are now grappling with, like, do you import French wines to a place in Fiji that's so far away? Or do you import closer by wines from Australia or something? And so that kind of import export of especially food and drink, I think is a huge, huge factor.
1: So it's not just the hospitality industry. We're also talking about food and agriculture, transportation, travel agencies and tour companies, tourism boards, attractions, entertainment. All of these things contribute to the scope of the tourism industry
2: tourism worldwide accounts for 10% of all jobs worldwide. So you have to look at the human factor of their input into this economy and how important that part is also.
1: Sarah clarified that this statistic is from 2019, but still, 10%? 10% of all jobs? That is wild to me.
0: And so now I think knowing that really puts the pandemic in perspective. Because, I mean, I knew there were a lot of people, but there were a lot, a lot of people who were suddenly out of work because no one was going anywhere. And obviously that was devastating for a lot of economies. And you can imagine even more so in countries where tourism is the major part of the economy. So we asked Sarah if she thinks tourism has changed, and if so, how now that many travel restrictions are starting to lift.
2: I don't know that the pandemic has necessarily changed the destinations that people are heading to in a long-term way, I think there is a kind of permanent change, or it looks like it might be permanent change in the way a lot of people are traveling. With this new environment we have of remote work that seems like it's sticking, people can travel to places for longer periods of time, work from those places, and we're seeing a lot of resorts start to cater to that. And we're seeing governments start to cater to it and offering what's known as a digital nomad visa. A lot of Caribbean countries are offering them. Italy has recently announced that they're starting one. Croatia has one. So there's a lot of that happening. And I think that will have a lasting effect on what resorts look like and how people use them.
1: I love that she brought up digital nomads because it feels like this is a trend that has been on the rise and then accelerated by the pandemic. So a digital nomad is someone who can do their work online and remotely so they can work from really any physical location, wherever they want, all over the world. And a digital nomad visa allows you to stay in a foreign country longer than a typical tourist visa, as long as you aren't entering the local labor market.
0: Yeah, as long as you're not trying to work in that country. Mm -hmm. Because if you're really a digital nomad, you should have a job in your home country.
2: (laughs) Yes.
1: And Sarah says that there are good and bad sides to digital nomadism.
2: In terms of climate change, it's better to take one flight to a place and stay there for a long time than it is to take four flights throughout the year on shorter trips. So in that sense, I think it's considered a good thing. I also think that the localities that are trying to attract digital nomads in this way see it as a good thing, and that people will have more of an actual experience with the community and the culture, rather than just dipping out, staying in the bubble of the resort. They'll actually live in the place, they'll get to know the place, and in that way it's a richer, better experience all around for the travelers coming there, for the locals, for everybody. One potential negative, of course, would be, you know, it's like the Airbnb effect of driving up housing costs that, you know, I don't think we've seen evidence of that yet, but just kind of logically, that could be a challenge if digital nomadism takes off in a huge way.
1: I saw an article recently on Travel Noir that said that Mexico City has gotten a huge influx of digital nomads, mainly from the United States and Canada, and the permanent residency applications have doubled since the pandemic. Wow. Mexicans are starting to protest this because they're seeing housing and cost of living prices on the rise, as well as an increase in gentrification.
0: And I've seen a lot of things about the residents of Mexico City, at least, complaining about the gentrification and increasing costs. Mm -hmm. And Bad Bunny's recent documentary talked about some similar things happening in Puerto Rico, where the government was making all these tax exemptions for companies. And, you know, companies go places where people are working and doing things and where it's easier for them to build. We talked about that in an earlier episode when we were talking about building semiconductor chip plants. And so... You know, once a place becomes popular with tourists, Mm -hmm. it's a chain reaction with the local economy. And so some folks have been complaining.
2: There's a tourism life cycle that kind of starts in this exploration stage where just a few intrepid travelers come to a place. And from there, the locals will start offering services just to those few people. And then a basic infrastructure gets developed. And then from there, outside companies tend to start to come in and locals... Start to lose control of the industry. And so that local economy is very, very important in terms of how it's structured.
0: This is really interesting because we recently did an episode about the United States economy. So we know how quickly a country's economy can change. And we also know what some of the driving forces of that change might be. A lot of tourist destinations see that along with increased popularity among tourists comes economic change that can be quite a shock to the local economy. And for some locals, that adjustment is not easy, or sometimes it's not even possible.
2: Who ultimately controls and benefits from beach tourism is really dependent on local governments. Like Local governments have to be involved in guaranteeing certain land rights, certain ownership rights. The governments decide who gets the permit to run the resort or who is allowed to get the permit. Sarah
1: cites two examples from her book on how local governments might affect the ability for indigenous groups to adapt to growing tourism.
2: In Fiji, land rights for the indigenous population are extremely strong. They really can't be taken away, and it's very strongly enforced. And because of that, this village that collectively owned this land now rents it to a resort and as a result gets rental income from this resort, kind of guaranteed. And then you compare that to some of the people that I met in Vietnam, this man named Hoa in particular, who back in the 90s opened this guest house on the beach. And it was very, very popular. He was beloved by visitors. But then when they started really developing the area for beach tourism, Vietnam does not have strong land ownership rights. They have clauses in their law that you know land can be taken away for the quote unquote public good but it's very vaguely defined what the public good is and so he ultimately had his land taken away even though he was a pioneer of making this industry happen there and on his land where he ran his little resort is now you know a four star resort run by a spanish company
1: A lot of people don't realize the impacts tourism can have if the government hasn't set things up correctly for the indigenous people of that country. And even in the places where the tourism industry has been alive and well for decades, we're seeing pushback from indigenous communities who are fighting against over-tourism. The most recent example is Hawaii.
2: The indigenous Hawaiians themselves, who have very much been crowded out of their own beachfronts, and I think are very frustrated that tourism in Hawaii seems to have been prioritized by the government over them. Hawaii is suffering a lot of ecological challenges from tourism now. I cover Waikiki pretty extensively in the book. And Waikiki is having all kinds of trouble even keeping a beach in place there now because of you know it's been overbuilt so much. And then there's also no way to have a trip to Hawaii that is not a long-haul flight, right? It's a long-haul flight from everywhere. And so in this kind of emerging understanding we're having of just how damaging the air travel part of travel is, a place like Hawaii really starts to suffer from that challenge.
0: Yo, Hawaii is way further west than I thought. I really like to open up maps and look at that whole thing. The distance from... Now, I don't know if this is true, but my eyeball distance from the west coast of California to Hawaii is further than the eastern coast of South America to the continent of Africa. Mm-hmm. Yes. Give Hawaii back, bruh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And another important thing to think about is carbon footprint. And so what a carbon footprint is, is the total amount of greenhouse gases that you generate by your action. So that can be driving a car, taking a bus, going on a plane. All of these things have a carbon footprint, even Ordering online because, you know, like we talked about in our episode about shipping and all the delays, all of that has a carbon footprint, too, because those items are being put on a truck and each of those trucks are emitting greenhouse gases. And so when we think about the context of carbon footprint, when it comes to air travel, that flight from wherever you are all the way to Hawaii, that is a significant amount of air pollution.
0: We're seeing the same thing happening in Puerto Rico, where Puerto Rican climate activists are fighting against coastal development and the privatization of public beaches. And the problem isn't just gentrification. It's also the coastal erosion that's happening because of climate change and the dangers that new infrastructure along the coast can bring in the wake of storms like Hurricane Maria and just recently Hurricane Fiona.
1: This is such a great point. And coastal erosion is the wearing away of the shoreline due to various factors that interrupt the natural balance between the waves, the currents and the wind. So imagine you put a resort right on that ocean line. That ocean line is going to feel the weight of that building baby. Tourism in coastal communities has huge repercussions for the local ecology as well as the local economy.
2: I think one of the biggest ways that resorts tend to impact the shorelines is by causing, ironically, the beaches to erode. And when that happens, it has an impact on the ecosystem. The animals that rely on that sand, then all of a sudden it might not be there. The animals that rely on those animals that rely on the sand might not be there. So it has this cascading effect. When sand gets kind of circulating in the water, It blocks sunlight from coral reefs that need sunlight. The content of the water is not agreeable to some animals anymore at that point.
1: We talked about this delicate balance of oceanic life with Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson.
0: And I think it's important to also highlight that, yes, in some cases, it's sand in the ocean, and that's blocking the beach, and that's just downstream effects from more people being in the kind of shallow waters, mm. right, or or more people in activity. Now, that's just like an unintended side effect. But some beach resorts are actually intentionally disrupting the natural ecology of a place by important invasive species, which we talked about with Dr. Nicholas Rayo. Mm.
2: And one example of this is the palm tree. Palm trees are actually not indigenous to most shorelines (laughs) in the world, but they get imported to every single resort that ever opens. And that comes at the expense of the natural trees that were there and part of the ecosystem. They require tons of water. They hardly provide any shade, which we need more and more (laughs) as temperatures are rising. I do think that that is something that is now seeping into our consciousness. And probably, you know, 50 years from now, the palm tree is not going to be the symbol of tourism, beach tourism, that it is now.
0: And, like, who decided? I don't even like palm trees. Who decided that the palm tree was the symbol of a relaxing vacation? Same with golf courses. Putt-putt,
2: not fun. (laughs) (laughs) Golf courses, which very, very often accompany beach resorts, are just a terrible, terrible ecological (laughs) presence. The fertilizers and stuff that, that are required to keep these large swaths of land, green, in places that are not supposed to be that green, inevitably runs off into the ocean and wreaks all kinds of havoc on the ocean life and the ecosystem there. And they clear out all the natural vegetation that existed in a place and kind of create this monoculture that is not helpful at all to the local ecosystem.
1: Let's take a break, and when we get back, we'll talk more with Sarah Stadola about how to take all of this into consideration when planning future travel.
0: back. But before we get to the lab, two quick notes. The first note is that our final lab is on October 27th, and we want to hear from you. What's been your favorite lab this semester? What else do you want us to talk about? Call us and tell us at 202-567-7028. You can also email us at contact at dopelabspodcast.com if you're feeling a little shy. Also, next week, we're going to be covering how social media has been changing so fast and what that might mean for future generations. So we'll be talking with Professor Jeff Hancock, who is the founder of the Stanford Social Media Lab. You don't
1: want to miss it. All right, let's get back to the lab. We've been talking to Sarah Stadola about the tourism industry and specifically its effects on local economies. So in learning this, how do you reconcile the desire to travel and take vacations? How do we take these things into consideration when we plan future travel? We asked Sarah if she had a framework for making these decisions.
2: I don't think the answer is to ask people or expect people to stop traveling. Trying to take trips that don't involve so many long flights, especially long flights, I think is good. That's not saying don't ever take them, but just be very cognizant of, you know, is this particular trip worth this long-haul flight? I think it's something really important to start thinking about.
0: And Sarah says, if you hang around long enough, the government might start making those decisions for you. So in France and the UK, for example, governments are starting to create policies that incentivize forms of travel other than flying. And at the same time, they're also discouraging frequent flyer programs.
1: We need something like that in the United States so that... Kylie Jenner and Taylor Swift can't take any more 10-minute flights. Did you see that? No. They are taking 10-minute flights. flights. Now, I know the traffic in L.A. is bad, but (laughs) your carbon footprint is the size of... A (laughs) T-Rex. Yes. (laughs) Sarah also stressed the importance of trying to support local businesses as much as possible.
2: I think one really important thing is to try to stay in places that are locally owned or locally managed or both, you know, the direct benefit to local communities that way is much greater. And I think doing that also results in a better trip for you or for whoever is traveling. I think you get a lot more out of that direct contact with the local culture and community. Same goes for restaurants. Instead of eating at like a major resorts restaurant, try to eat a locally owned place. If you're at the beach, use reef safe sunscreen. Those are all things you can do to at least not be making the situation worse.
0: (laughs) If you're taking a flight somewhere, Sarah recommends doing your research and looking into buying carbon offsets.
2: So carbon offsets are something that you can buy and just like the name implies, it's meant to offset the carbon imprint from a flight. So the most kind of straightforward one is, you know, you can buy offsets from companies that will plant a certain number of trees or plant a certain amount of vegetation in order to offset the carbon output from your flight.
0: Well, who's gonna offset it from the palm trees? (laughs) And
2: you know, the major caveat here
0: is that these programs are not perfect. So Mm -hmm. I don't wanna say at best, but at medium, (laughs) you're gonna feel less guilty about your trip. You know, that could be its own show about how the carbon offset programs work.
1: Yeah. I mean, and we talked about this in other episodes where, you know, you should stop drinking oat milk. You should drink soy milk because of this, that, and the other thing. All of these things are little steps in the right direction. And we're all trying to have a positive impact in every space that we're in when it comes to being more eco-friendly. Yeah. Yeah. So this whole episode has really made me think a lot about traveling, of course, but it also made me think about some of my favorite travel bloggers. And one of my favorites is Nia Chauvin, also known as Born A Backpacker. And she has a blog that I really love. I follow her on Instagram and her blog website. And she gives you tips and tricks about how to save money while you're traveling, how to be eco-friendly while you're traveling. And so we asked her to talk to us about the travel that she does with her family, and give us some tips and tricks about how to have a positive impact on the communities that we're visiting while we're traveling.
3: Hi, I'm Nia Chauvin, and I travel half the year with my husband and our three children, who are currently six, three, and one. And I document our travels through a blog, Born a Backpacker. Traveling together as a family is important for me because, one, it's core to who I was and what I loved to do before becoming a mother. So I didn't want to lose that part of me. And second, and even more important, showing my children other cultures, traditions, foods, languages, fosters, I believe, an understanding, acceptance, and respect for people with all different backgrounds. Our typical length of stay in a country is about two months, and when we travel, we really try to do it as eco-friendly as possible. The most deliberate we are about traveling in an eco-friendly way is deciding where we put our dollars and ensuring it goes directly to locals, specifically with accommodation and food, because that's where we spend the most money. It sometimes takes some digging, but we always try to stay at places that are locally owned, whether it be a hotel, Airbnb, or a homestay with a family. And the same goes for restaurants we eat at. We always search for the local spots that make food from the region, with food from the region, grown in the region. Not only is that considered ecotourism, but it's also better food. (laughs) And for me, putting money directly in locals' pockets is the best way we can leave a positive impact. And with a long list of things, I would encourage people to try and adopt as many as possible, but know that no one is perfect. We just have to make an effort and make some sacrifices to do what we can to be responsible and ethical travelers.
1: I'm actually in Peru right now. And Mm -hmm. I am definitely taking these recommendations to heart. We're eating local. We are making sure that we're spending our money in local environments, not going to any big chains. And it feels really good to support the local Peruvian people.
0: And so I think that's a great start, TT. And you did it on a dime, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so when we look to the future of tourism... What might vacations look like in a future where we're all kind of modeling after you and trying to thrive as a global community?
2: I think beach resorts will survive. I don't think that 50 years from now, we're not gonna have beach resorts anymore, but I do think that they are going to have to and will look very different than they do today. I think that resorts are no longer going to be built right up at the sand anymore. We're already seeing a lot of countries implement laws called setback laws, and it means that no new construction can happen within, it's usually something like 50 meters of the high tide line. We're gonna be seeing, kind of embracing the natural environment along with the beach a little more. We'll see what happens with air travel. You know, the interesting thing about air travel is that it is getting more efficient all the time. So on a per flight basis, it's much more efficient. It has much less of a carbon imprint than it did 20 years ago but overall air travel has grown so much that the overall carbon footprint of air travel is just still kind of growing exponentially. So hopefully in this optimistic scenario, we get to a point where air travel is no longer the super problematic element that it is today. And are we gonna be there in 10 years? Probably not, but maybe in 20 or 30 years we'll be there.
0: Okay, it's time for the one thing. TT, I think our collective one thing is Sarah Stadola's book.
1: Yes, you should definitely pick up Sarah Stadola's book, The Last Resort, A Chronicle of Paradise, Profit, and Peril at the Beach. I really enjoyed reading this book. I learned so much about the tourism industry, how it started, how we got to where we are today. I mean, if you really like this episode, you will really enjoy Sarah's book. So make sure you pick that up. Also follow... Our friend, Nia Chauvin, at Born a Backpacker on Instagram. Yes. And subscribe to her blog. It's so fun. Her kids are so cute. And she has really amazing content on Instagram, TikTok, and her blog. So check it all out.
0: And if you want to know more about your carbon footprint, if you want to calculate it, figure it out, how you can adjust it with travel and how that changes... Go to the show notes and we're going to have a link to a carbon footprint calculator from the Nature Conservancy. So you can look at that.
1: That's very cool. I want to know mine. I saw the average is 16 tons. I don't think I put out 16 tons.
0: That's for an American because Americans Mm -hmm. are the worst. That's one of the highest rates in the world. Globally, the average carbon footprint is four tons.
1: Okay, we've got a problem. America, we've got a problem.
0: Beyonce already.
1: America has got a problem.
0: (laughs) Beyonce. We'll also have a link to that song for
1: you. Yes, go TT, go TT. We love you, Beyonce. That's it for Lab eighty one. Are you taking any trips soon? Where are you going?
0: Call us at 202-567-7028 and tell us what you thought. Or call us and tell us about your favorite lab from this semester. Remember, our finale is coming up and we want to hear from you. That's 202-567-7028.
1: And don't forget, there's so much more for you to dig into on our website. There'll be a cheat sheet for today's lab and additional links and resources in the show notes. Plus, you can sign up for our newsletter. Check it out at dopelabspodcast.com. Special thanks to today's guest expert, Sarah Stodola.
0: You can find her on Twitter at
1: S. Stodola, S S T O D O L A. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Dope Labs Podcast.
0: TT is on Twitter and Instagram at DR underscore T S H O.
1: And you can find Zakia at Z Said So.
0: Dope Labs is a Spotify original production from Mega Ohm Media Group.
1: Our producers are Jenny Radlett-Mast and Lydia Smith of Wave Runner Studios. Our associate producer is Caro Rolando.
0: Editing and sound design by Rob Smurziak with additional mixing and sound design by Hannes Brown.
1: Original music composed and produced by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Zugiura. From Spotify, creative producer Miguel Contreras.
0: Special thanks to Shirley Ramos, Jess Borison, Teal Kratky and Brian Marquis. Executive producers from Mega Om Media
1: Group are us. Titi Shodia, And Zakia Watley.